0: My name is Doria Robinson. I'm the executive director of Urban Tilth. Urban Tilth is an urban agriculture organization, a nonprofit organization in Richmond, California, which is just just um, the northern part of the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area.
1: And tell us a bit about Urban Tilth. What does? Where did it come from? What does it do? What, what's it all about?
0: Okay. <laughs> so, Urban Tilth started as just the dream of one of one man, Park Guthrie, who's really interested in gardening and homesteading and wanted to help people grow food. It started off as, as just him kind of offering technical assistance to people to start gardens and schools and in um, other areas. I came on as a volunteer once this idea kind of, he floated out a, an, an, a, a vision paper about, there's this one section of our city um, that used to be an old railroad track. Um, it goes 42 blocks down the center of the city and it was just transformed um, via rails to trails to this 42 block long park, um, huge park. It's, you know, five, five miles of park um, space. And Park wrote this vision of this whole greenway, it's called the Richmond Greenway, filled with growing spaces. Like it actually was gonna become this urban agriculture mecca, you know, where everyone it literally is the dividing line in the city our um, City has a lot of problems with violence and gun violence and, and, and drug gangs and whatnot. It was literally the dividing line between gang territory. So he envisioned it as a space where both sides would come together and grow together. Great. <laughs> you know, there would be berry gardens and orchards and, you know, open community gardens where anyone could come and harvest food. It would just be free food for all, um, on, you know, through like seven different neighborhoods. I, I got that email that he sent out and, and I was like, well, that sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, one like, of those please. <laughs> and um, I actually came on as a volunteer and um, kind of kept helping and helping and eventually uh, Park got really tired as many people who start these things as a labor of love do, you know? And he needed to stop and he asked me to, to become executive director and... Um, and I did. I grew up here in Richmond. I'm third generation Richmond resident. And for folks who don't know Richmond, Richmond is this really interesting town in the yeah, San Francisco Bay Area. We have the Chevron refinery um, in our town. So I grew up five blocks from this massive refinery. Really huge population of people of color who came up from the south or from the south-south, from Mexico and other places um, to find work in various places points in time, it's really an interesting space. One of the things that we really need is jobs. There's an enormous unemployment rate here, 17% for young uh, black and brown boys, really no jobs. If you're growing up here and you don't have a track, a college track, which most people don't, most people don't graduate high school, That your options for employment is kind of like Target, Walmart, <laughs> you know, Taco Bell. <laughs> In working with Urban Health, I kept kind of thinking about, well, how can we take this, what we're doing, this small-scale thing, and actually provide food? Because that's the other thing that we need. We have one grocery store for 100,000 people. And it was like, you know, how do we take this idea around, you know, growing all this food that we started? Now we have four gardens on that Richmond Greenway, pretty massive gardens. But I, I, we just needed to do more, you know? So over the last five years, I've been kind of growing out this idea of that, there's actually, even in a poor city, a lot of money that people spend on food because people have to eat. Um, and if we can get them to redirect those funds to pay people to grow food <laughs> and, and get healthy food directly to people, um, that we could create jobs and have healthy food, um, even if we don't have a lot of money. So now we have 13 different school and community gardens that all are production gardens. So we actually, they're not, we don't call, they're not museum gardens. They're not just for ooh and ah, but actually to produce food um, that gets distributed through markets and CSAs. <sighs> now we're starting with our first relatively larger scale farm in the city. is three acre farm in the middle of the city to even scale up more. So just trying to grow as much food as possible. And um, employ as many people as possible. We went from this one man show to having now nine people year round and 62. 62- people um during the height of growing season
1: and you've been i'm sure to to visit urban agriculture in in, in lots of other places as well around the u.s and in other places what what, what what's what's specific challenges what are the challenges that are specific to doing it in richmond do you think
0: one of the biggest challenges is making sure that our soil is clean you know living in the shadow of chevron there's a lot of places that we just can't grow because of Uh, historic contamination, either from deposition from the refinery or from, you know, other uses, you know, people just dumping in in and around the city. So to be really careful about where we grow and we have to constantly do testing, soil testing, plant testing, to make sure that Chevron hasn't done some sneaky thing. (laughs) And, you know, poisons us all without us knowing. Um, so that's a huge challenge but outside of that only the fact that people don't eat real food you know that people are really used to opening up a package and putting it in the microwave and calling it dinner you know getting people who don't even necessarily cook you know <laughs> or to even know how to cook to buy and eat fresh food is a process you know it's a real process we we have to actually we teach cooking classes in all of our gardens because people, Literally, don't know how to cook anymore. It's not just kids, <laughs> so that's a challenge. But outside of that, we are really fortunate to have an amazing city um, government that is extremely supportive of uh, all of these kind of alternative uh, efforts. Right. So they just passed. I don't know what you call it. It's not really an ordinance, but um, it was uh, a directive to staff to investigate you know, this new um, urban agriculture law that has come down in the state of California to give tax breaks for repurposing vacant land within urban communities for urban agriculture. So now the city government is taking that on in earnest to create an urban agriculture zone throughout the city. And, you know, they've sponsored an urban agriculture summit. There's a lot of extremely progressive things happening in city government because I think of a, a whole crew of people who are pretty progressive, who have been getting involved in various ways.
1: One of the things that you mentioned at the event in Hopland was the kind of solidarity aspect of what you're doing in terms of standing alongside other communities who are experiencing the uh, uh, the downsides of uh, uh, if there are many upsides of Chevron, but particularly the downsides of Chevron. And you mentioned that you'd been to Ecuador and that you were working with, with the communities there. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Right. That that was really a, been a very hopeful betting thing. So Chevron, again, is this major player in our city. They dump millions of dollars into city elections, you know, uh, city elections that, in any, our scale of city would normally have elections that would spend maybe maybe $50,000 on an election. You know, they don't regularly one $2 million per year in order to get the candidates they want elected. You know, just other ways, just controlling regulatory departments, you know, giving money to nonprofits to kind of, kind, of, kind of hush money, you know, like can't say anything bad about Chevron. And they literally kind of write it into their contracts. So you feel very isolated if you want to say anything contrary to what they want you to say. Last year, they had a big uh, explosion and fire at the refinery. The skies burned for six hours. (laughs) Just the skies turned black, and we were all covered in this toxic soot full of PAHs. Finally, the city government was like, okay, this is ridiculous. We're suing you, you know? You just dropped our property taxes. You dropped everything. And everybody said, you know, you're crazy. You'll never win and and whatnot. And so um, the mayor, who has always had contacts with different folks in Nigeria and, you know, even in, in Ecuador, was very open to looking for other communities who can stand with us, right? So we're not just these little guys, you know, picking a fight with the big guy in the bar. We had a march to commemorate the fire, one year later, and at that mark, a representative from the president of Ecuador approached our mayor, and said, "Hey, we sued you know Chevron as well, and in our courts, we won a 18 billion dollar judgment that they're refusing to pay. And won't you come to Ecuador so I can we can show you what they did, and you can stand in solidarity with us?" A few weeks later, they sent us to Ecuador, uh, the mayor, myself, and another reporter. And we were able to see the damage they did in the Amazon firsthand and um, meet with the affected communities so indigenous people whose lives were just ravaged by this company, this multinational company. And it was pretty profound. I mean, we'd always hosted different groups and kind of shared stories, but I think this, this time was different. You know, like we actually made a point to talk about and take steps to create this international union of affected peoples as a means to stand up to these multinational corporations that, you know, go beyond national governments and are kind of beyond international law, beyond international government law, hoping that, you know, by standing with other communities who are affected internationally, we can create a way to hold these, these ominous entities, uh, multinational corporations responsible for their actions. It's pretty exciting. There's a lot of things that are moving on that front. It's really hopeful that, you know, community, individuals to individuals can actually build
1: power. What does it mean for, for a community project that's got 13 different gardens growing across Richmond when the sky turns black and all the soot comes down and you it can't, you can't eat much of that? Huh?
0: Right. We lost all of our produce. That summer, we lost four months of work, 62 people working for four months, just lost all of our work. We had to rip everything out and and, and not even compost it. We had to throw it away. And then spend the next six months rehabilitating the soil, um, trying to hope that it wasn't any heavy metals in it because it would be kind of a game over, you know? Um, it was traumatic. It was intense, I mean, especially because a good group of the people that we were growing with that summer and we grow with every summer our youth who are gaining reconnected with the land to and who aren't used to nurturing anything so to get them to nurture something for so long and then we're literally at the end of our summer program about to have the harvest festival and and then the fire happened you know and it and it just canceled everything and and the youth were just d- devastated i mean we're all devastated
1: it must make, um, must make people very angry.
0: Yeah, they were kind of they were kind of pissed. <laughs> 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 and you know, actually, the the funny thing is, is that they were because it was, you know, it was their work and 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 their love, you know, and and their hope for not having to to be stuck in this world with no future, with no promise, with no healthy things that you know they had really felt the possibility of being able to grow something that they could be proud of. And then to have that destroyed because Chevron decided not to repair some pipes, you know, they were actually found criminally negligent um, because they refused to repair pipes that they knew were corroded. And that's that was the cause of the fire, you know. Um, so to, to know that this company just decided that it wasn't in their, you know, profit interest <laughs> To care for the pe- all these hundred thousand people who live around them, it was it was you know it was it was maddening, hmm. and um, the youth in the organization and other members of the organization kind of rose up. and We're not normally a protest organization like we're out in the gardens kicking around with <laughs> horse manure and stuff. We're not like out with with protest signs, but this time we we're out with protest signs. We actually took a good portion of that food that we had to rip out and brought it to the Chevron community meeting and dumped it on stage in front of them saying, you poisoned our food and and you need to, you know, be responsible for this. They didn't like that very much.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) It wasn't
0: my idea either. This was, you know, the kids that we were working with, the young adults who said that we can't be silent, you know, like... Um, None of them had ever done a protest before or a press release or anything like that, but it it had touched them. So they were just like, how do you do this? Let's do this.
1: When we were, when we were in, um, in, in Hopland, and I, I was talking about the realisation, I suppose, that's come through the whole transition movement that actually we can't do all of this through volunteering, that actually if we're going to scale it up, we need to be creating livelihoods for people and jobs for people. And you said if this is a revolution that depends on volunteering, I can't be part of your revolution. How does Urban Tilt sort of fund what it does and, and what's your kind of reflections on that conversation that we had then?
0: So just... First, first off is, um, I was so thankful when you brought up the, con- the concept. Because I think that um, there's just this overwhelming sense in progressive communities and transition movement and permaculture that we can do everything for free, you know? That it can just be a free society and we can barter and we can trade and we can whatever. And it's not that I don't believe in bartering is that I live in a community where people can't pay rent. And when they can't pay rent, they end up on the street, you know, or in a shelter somewhere, or or stacked up 10 people in a house with, with not much to eat, you know, eating ramen noodles or something. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to assume that everyone has the same amount of security and wealth, that so they could, you know, spend a good portion of their day giving their time away, and expect to have a shelter at night. Uh, It's a blind spot in the movement. It's not sustainable. The only way I can see that it is sustainable is if we have radical land reform. (laughs) You know, seriously, radical land reform and radical reform around access to water and, you know, energy. (laughs) We're, you know, generating energy locally and, Everyone has access to water. Then maybe we can talk about barter, barter culture. But until that happens, um, especially if we want to scale things up, um, we have to figure out a way where, where we're trading so that people can still pay rent. <laughs> um, so with urban self, um, right now, we're nowhere close to being able to support ourselves um, with um, our work, but we're getting there. Um, I just. We are about to scale up our CSAs from just being these very neighborhood-based, you know, we have a CSA at the, the high school where we grow food for the families that sign up on back-to-school night. Um, we're about to scale that up like four times um, into a, a, pro, a for-profit entrepreneurial venture that supports the nonprofit, um, and that will be completely self-sustainable in one year. Um, just from the food that we're growing, um, in partnership with some small farmers in East Co- Eastern Contra Costa County, um, so that we can maintain uh, the yield that we need to um, service 500 families. Um, that's exciting. <laughs> and that- it's exciting that we're going to have something that actually is you know, financially sustainable and can then support other activities
1: and that that step for you as an organisation from sort of doing i can't remember what the word was used but you know sort of smaller kind of things to be doing something to thinking shit right we need to be looking at this as a as a profit making yep. enterprise yep how, how was that shift f- f- for you in terms of your thinking and in terms of the skills did you have those skills already did you have to get them in yeah.
0: I mean, I didn't have have the skills already. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about how you construct a food packing facility right now. (laughs) Living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought about that before. Um, But it's awesome, you know. I mean, I've worked in a food packing facility. I worked for a produce distributor um, run by women in San Francisco, a co-op. And um, so I know how the workflow goes, but I didn't know how to kind of actually construct the space and pass codes and permitting and everything like that. So that's what we're working through now. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting to think that we're going to move from not, from being a pilot project to, to actually serving people's lives. Like they're going to depend on us for dinner, you know, that's exciting. You know, like, all of the exchanges around, you know, needing to be more structured and, you know, having an accounting, an accountant that <laughs> works on the regular to kind of take care of the financial side and the taxes and whatnot, um, all of all of that worry and, and all of that work is so worth the thought that we're going to be actually feeding people, you know, mm. um, in a real way. Um, it's worth it, you know.
1: One of the things that the, the permaculture movement and and transition haven't been great at is uh, in the inclusion and diversity and having uh, having a diversity of of, of, of faces uh, and people involved in events. What's your thought about uh, any advice you would have for groups that are starting up and wanting to really make that a central kind of uh, mindfulness as they as they're as they're Doing transition in their community.
0: I mean, maybe kind of from the start, thinking about that one of the major barriers for low-income people or people of color um, in entering into the movement is, you know, not having the financial security and all of the uh, mind space that comes with that. Mm. Um, not having they don't have that off the bat you know so as you think of projects to kind of uh, pitch or projects to get involved with think about ways where if there is a job or some kind of position that's in there um, think about ways to hire somebody you know the best way to get people involved with the movement is is to make it possible for them to do it and to hire them into those positions um, train them up, I feel like they're our natural allies within low-income communities and communities of color. We believe <laughs> in, you know, you, whenever, in the United States, whenever communities of color are uphold, po- especially African-American communities around environmental issues or climate change or co-ops or anything like that, you know, overwhelming majority are in favor of all these things. But it's whether or not we have uh, the wealth to participate, you know, and um, so yeah, if you're thinking about projects, you know, how can you create these projects off the, off the bat, knowing that we're we're trying to create an alternative economy, you know, where people can actually um, make a living, you know, that and not just creating community amongst ourselves. Um, Um, or amongst yourselves (laughs) but creating an alternative economy I believe if we are going to transition we have to create an alternative economy Um, and looking at what that means you know um, shorter supply chains um, local generation local growing you know like what are these other aspects of transition um, that could include you know markets um, but local markets where people could actually sustain themselves. What are the um, the lines of, of of resources that are running through the community, and how can we redirect them um, to to feed ourselves or to grow whatever we need to grow in a positive, you know, sustainable way.
1: Mm. And. Uh, um... In terms of, you know, you've, you've talked about how you're looking to set up the CSA as a profitable venture and look more at the work of Urban Tilth in that kind of way. what yeah. Can you identify the things that are stopping you from scaling Urban Tilth up to the, well, right, you know, to the extent yeah. you'd love it to?
0: Uh, right now, it's just expertise, I think, and then capital. You know, um, the CSA, you know, in order to get – it off the ground, having, we need this, this packing facility because we're moving a lot more food around and we need to have cold storage in order to make sure it arrives to people in good shape and kind of passes the food, food codes, um, which are pretty minimal around fresh produce, but we still need cold storage. So in order to create that facility, we needed a good amount of capital. Um, and of course being poor people, we don't have capital (laughs) and we don't have credit, you know? Um. Which, enter, you know, here enters the nonprofit. We can seek grant funding for capital investment. Um, so capital investment is a huge barrier um, to entry. But having this vehicle of a nonprofit to raise that capital has been, you know, it's been the only way that it's it's been possible. So we're almost, we, we have very little money left um, to finish fund, you know, raising the funds necessary to finish the packing facility. Um, and then the next the next chunk of that is uh, actually the warehouse that we're working in is, is quite large. Um, so half of it is for packing for the CSA and the other half we're building out a commercial kitchen. Um, that'll be a low cost commercial kitchen so people can start food ventures um, in a legal space um, that's cost effective. They can still make a profit at their you know mobile vendor or their catering business or their small, you know, the people do kind of really alternative food vendor stuff like with ice cream carts and whatnot. Um, so we're, we're creating this commercial kitchen um, that like, will again...
1: Like la like cocina. In, yes, uh,
0: exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just capital. Capital investment and then trying to learn business. <laughs> 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 you know? like, This is not something <clears throat> I ever was exposed to. So trying to figure out, you know, how to do the budgets correctly, and how to you know estimate expense, and how to um, think about marketing, and you know, and really, really, you know, target or, or narrow down on what we need to make it successful, you know, so we can actually sustain. Um, and the funny thing is, is that we we realized with the with the CSA that as soon as we're able to really Articulate that in the in the in the in the in the business plan is not that hard. We need 500 families, you know, in order to create a living for you know seven people. You know, 500 growing food for 500 people supports you know seven people plus all the farmers and you know and 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 everything. So it's more than seven people, but. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty
1: cool you know and uh so you were talking about capital i mean one of the <clears throat> one of the challenges i guess is around uh or oh, the interesting thing with with 350.org and all the, di- the the divestment stuff uh is is the the question about okay so if you divest out of coal then what do you invest into right and if, and if we were able to uh Pull together something whereby people were able to divest and then invest into this economy, invest into the new exactly. economy. What, exactly. what, what? From your perspective, would be the uh, what would that capital do? What would it? How would it behave? What would it demand of you? What would be available to you?
0: Well, so many other ideas for you know things that we need in the community that we need you know to actually you know have spaces to create a manufacturing facility or have spaces to, you know, buy land or put land into a land trust in order to do these things. I mean, it's just capital investment. I mean, it basically it would take us so that we were out of, totally out of the foundation world, you know, not not getting handouts from, you know, well-off people <laughs> in order to do this work, you know, at least from the start. like. So right now we're at a stage where we're so happy that we're getting handouts from well off people so so we can create this capital to create this venture. But wouldn't it be nice if divestment in, instead redirected those funds to create the capital to do these, these things? And so we would never need to have a population of you know, uber rich, very well off people who, you know, off a little bit of their money to to you, you know. If you I would like to make the existence of very wealthy people a non-necessity. <laughs> 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 like we don't have to have them, you know, we don't have to have the scraps off their table in order to survive, right? Yeah. That we can actually, you know, take our pension funds and our whatever it is and and, and, and redirect them towards building this alternative economy, right? Mm. Um, that'd be great
1: it was a thing that really struck me when i was <clears throat> when i was in the us and meeting some of the different foundations and stuff was how they they like to think of themselves as benevolent and charitable and fantastic and making the world a better place but they have a maybe kind of a, a billion dollar endowment which is invested in coal and gas and all sorts of shit so they can get a 10% return on it every year and then they take a percentage of what they get as interest and give it out to everybody to try and clean up all the mess they've made with their endowment, and yeah. then and then like to think of themselves as being a good thing when they're yeah. hugely net negative thing. It was quite yeah. an, quite a an nightmare. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So so, I suppose the last thing is really on, on that on that question of scaling up. Right. If we look at all the different things that are going on, um across the US and across the world in terms of local local economic things and community renewable energy things and all those all, all those things that are going on. What do you see as as being the the, the potential of that scaling up? Well the, the the challenges of scaling that up and the opportunity of scaling that up?
0: I mean well definitely the challenges is, is that one we haven't really I think identified all of the opportunities. Um, what industries, what Practices? Do we want to scale up? I mean, people have their eye on food things; they have their eye on solar. Um, but what else is there? What else are the needs of of human communities, and and how can we how can we supply those needs and locally, you know, in a sustainable way? I think that one one challenge is just identifying those things, so we can start to really see in detail what this new economy would look like and what it's composed of. Um, two is, you know, just working against this incredible, you know, flow of of the other the the default economy, <laughs> having you know all of its systems are already set up, and you know everything flows so easily into that system. It's hard hard to resist. Um, it's hard to resist not replicating it. Um, it's hard to resist not using parts of it <laughs> to. To get what you want to get done, and and um, and in fact, maybe not doing yourself a disservice by by using part of it. Um, so, resisting the existing default economy, um, resisting participation in it, um, and then uh, and then just wrestling resources, wrestling that capital. You know, um, getting people to trust in Alternative funding, you know, crowdfunding or you know divestment, um, reinvestment—it's um, a big trust factor, right? Hmm. Um, so I think that those three things are the things that I think of. Like, what do we want to build? <laughs> what are the elements? What are we investing in? Um, how do we not build it so it just replicates, you know, what we did before, um, or helps to continue the existence of what isn't working? And three, how do we build a system of of trust around resources so that people trust that we can actually redirect those resources into something positive. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that, that that to me seems like what's up, you know, what's what needs to what we need the challenges are.
1: Definitely. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great. Yeah. I was I was reading about the that that thing with Chevron and the refusing to pay the fine and then and then and how now they're going after the um, they're going after the lawyer who bought the case. It's crazy.
0: How it's do crazy. those
1: how do those people look at themselves in the morning? What?
0: I don't know. <laughs> I, I swear I was standing at you know this one of these pits, you know. Or literally literally they're like waterbeds, you know, like because they just took soil and dumped soil on top of this big pit of water and crude oil. And you can walk on them a little bit and they kind of shake like a waterbed. And you put your hand in it, it reeks of fuel, you know? And you put your hand in, it, you literally come back with, with crud and crude oil all over you. And I just kept remembering, you know, the movie crude and when they're saying, We cleaned it up, we cleaned it up like really? <laughs> <laughs> It's like it was like a kid that's like you know got chocolate all over their face. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't eat any chocolate, you know, and it's just like what you know and yeah. So this Rico case is, is outrageous. It's crazy. It's like we held you account- accountable. You you know we went through this twenty year case, twenty years of proving our case. You lost, so now you're gonna call us the mafia. You know you're you're the mafia. It's it's madness. It's I. I, I it's shocking. You know, and we've been doing report backs here in Richmond and uh we had a we showed the film Crude and after we showed the film when the lights went out somebody came in from Chevron and left like the, these videos on, on on all the seats, you know, saying the real story behind Crude, you know. And with these letters and it's just like they're so ominous. They're they're like <laughs> they're they're like you know the bad guys in 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 movies it's just it's it's really unbelievable you know it's really kind of (laughs) unbelievable my mom calls them uh like they're like deadbeat dads you know like (laughs) 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 like the only way they'll ever do anything that's right is if you force them you know